Hello, my name is Johnny Taylor and I am a PE teacher and a coach with a passion for all things related to mindfulness, breathwork and sports science. And welcome to the Optimal Mindset Podcast. In these episodes, we'll be chatting with some of my personal idols and experts in the field of sports and performance. I hope to uncover the stories about their journey, optimizing routine and mindset they use to achieve their goals. All right, welcome to the second ever episode of the Optimal Mindset podcast. Uh, super excited today to have uh, Campbell Will here, who is the founder of the Breath and Body Therapy Company. He's a senior physiotherapist, a Wim Hof instructor, and a breathwork facilitator. And today we're going to kind of touch on uh, how breathwork can be used uh, in terms of performance, uh, peak experience, emotions, uh, and many, many other areas. So super um, excited that you're here. And uh, looking forward to kind of hear where this conversation goes. So I just like to start if you could just give us a bit of background about how you got into breathing and how you got into breath work, um, and kind of what was the inspiration behind your the start of that journey. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, my background as a physio, I've always kind of been interested in in how the human body works, and that kind of led me down the road. And I always thought, you know, I'd work in sports performance and you know injury rehab, and. I went through physiotherapy school, you know, spent five years at uni, and then I actually started in the hospital system and I was working in intensive care at the time, kind of in a more respiratory based role. And so physios that work in the hospital setting, a lot of that's around mobilizing, you know, getting people up and walking, but it's also making sure they're breathing, you know, and that was my first kind of introduction to this thing that we're all doing all the time, you know, that I'd definitely taken for granted. I'd never had severe asthma. I'd never, you know, like had any issues with my breathing. So it was just always happened in the back me and then I started to work with people that couldn't breathe and that really just you know it did something to the way I looked at the world and our way I looked at patients and kind of had this realization that you know everyone's breathing but not many people are talking about well how do you breathe well and, and what's the difference between kind of good and bad or functional and dysfunctional and around that kind of same time I, I stumbled across the Wim Hof method which if people don't know Wim and a crazy Dutch guy that hikes mountains in the snow and He's really brought a lot of attention to breath work and he's done some pretty amazing stuff. Um, and I just kind of noticed, you know, a little bit of a gap or, or a disconnect between what I was able to do and what I was, you know, my, my role in the clinical setting in a hospital. And then what I saw the potential for people like Wim Hof, doing, you know, these kind of feats of endurance and performance and emotional regulation, inflammation. And ever since then, I've really been kind of bring those two points together. Um, because I think we're we're missing a lot on the clinical side of things, and I also think there's a a lot to be said for bringing more of a an assessment and treatment and individualization of breathing to this world of conscious breathwork that at the moment is a bit more of a one size fits all. You know, do this breathing technique and you'll feel this way. But we're all a little bit different. Like your nervous system's different to mine, Jones. We do the same. We're going to get different results. And so, you know, it's been a, a passion of mine and a rabbit hole that I've just been diving down for the last kind of six years um, and one that doesn't seem to be ending. But that's a good thing because there's a, a lot to be said for, you know, restoring optimal breathing and what that can do for health and performance. Huh, amazing. No, you've given some really good points. I just kind of wanted to, to elaborate on or kind of dive deeper in there. In terms of like when you're thinking about how the clinical side of things looks at breath work and breathing, do you think there's a disconnect between um you know how that's viewed in terms of the clinical side versus more of like a as it's seen as a in terms of are they kind of thinking it in like looking at it in terms of conscious breathing or do you think it's 
there's a disconnect between the clinical benefits and also how it's viewed by people in that setting. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, honestly. You know, whether you see it as a good thing or a bad thing, and I think there's elements of both, especially in physiotherapy, but all Western medicine, you know, it stands to wait for the evidence and the clinical trials and the research base and the journals and the supporter, which, yeah, we need to do that. But breathing, if done correctly, has no negative effects, right? Like we're not trying something risky and hoping it works. So I think, yes, we can wait for the research to back up what some people are saying it does. And that's happening now. There's a lot of money being pushed and a lot of studies being done on like the impacts of breathing on stress and mood regulation and sleep and heart rate variability. So we're getting the data that we need to then go and put this into clinical practice. But it's also really well established that there's often, you know, a 10 to 15 year wait between what is found in research and when it's applied in the clinical setting. So I think we are silly to wait 15 years to actually teach people to breathe better. But then I, I second side of it is, you know, within the clinical setting, in my experience, we look at something like breathwork and it's like, oh, this is this esoteric woo-woo thing that came from yoga. Like we're not giving it the weight behind, well, it actually regulates the nervous system and it alters brain activity and it changes the cardiovascular system. Like it doesn't need to be an esoteric discipline. It's the function of the human body that for some reason we've kind of overlooked unless it's broken. And that's where I, you know, really want to kind of change the paradigm a little bit. It's like, don't wait until your breathing's broken to do something about it. You know, we can all perform preventative medicine in a way of like, well, let me optimize this thing that influences literally every other system in my body. And it's silly to wait until it breaks or goes wrong before I pay attention to it and give it, you know, the due that it's the like the kind of necessary time and effort. Perfect. Perfect. That's a great, yeah, really good answer. And I kind of like how that might segue to what we're going to talk about next. So um, I kind of wanted to start with the, the maybe the physiology or like the the way that you, because I know in some of your courses, you teach like the physiology and like the biochemistry and the, the biomechanics of breathing. So for someone that maybe doesn't know anything about this, or maybe someone who's completely new, like how would you, maybe how do you describe what it would be to breathe in a more optimal way from a physiological or maybe a biomechanical, biochemi biochemical way? Yeah, well, let's dive into both. <clears throat> you know, yep. so the simple way that I like to teach it, you know, and just the way to me makes more sense to understand is we've got kind of two aspects. What's called ventilation, which is like getting air in and out of my body, right? And so this is what we do 20 to 25,000 times a day. I take a breath, you know, my diaphragm goes down, my rib cage goes out and air comes in. This is ventilation. But that's different to respiration, which is what actually happens when the air gets into my blood, right? And so I've got kind of like two processes. How do I get the air into my body? And then the more physiological or biochemical side is like, how do I deliver oxygen to the cell? And they're two different things. You know, one is much more based on mechanics. You know, can my diaphragm go down? Can my rib cage expand? right, to bring enough air into the body. But then the second component is much more based on chemistry. And we've got kind of the red blood cell, which we can think of like a taxi, you know, and that taxi has to deliver its passenger, the oxygen to the 60 to 70 trillion cells in our body. And that's really a, a biochemical or, a, you know, physiological relationship where the gases, right, I need to have enough carbon dioxide to relax the blood vessel and to move the oxygen into the cell. I think a lot of people are starting to look at biomechanics of like, oh, well, you should have a strong and well-controlled diaphragm and you should have a mobile rib cage. 
less people are paying attention to the biochemistry because it's just less tangible. You know, it's harder for us to like, well, you know, exercise chemistry. Uh, there's definitely ways we can do that. We can talk about some of them today, but it's really important that we kind of understand both. And even as I've explained it, you know, it might sound like they're two separate things, but they're so interwoven. You know, you change the mechanics of how someone breathes and it automatically and undeniably is going to impact the chemistry. And so it's not that one is separate to the other. They really lead into each other. And I think it's very important to, you know, optimize both. And so what that kind of looks like in a very general sense is we want to be breathing low in the body right? We don't want to breathe up into the throat, the neck, the shoulders, the collarbones. And so right now, as we're sitting here, I'm watching you, Johnny, your shoulders aren't going up and down. That's a really good thing. A lot of people that I work with, I'm watching them breathe and their shoulders are rising up to their ears and falling. And so we're pulling the air into the top part of the lungs and there's just less room and there's less space for the oxygen to actually do its thing. So we want to breathe low in the body. The second thing is we want to breathe slowly right? Again, as we're sitting here, I can't hear you breathing. And I'm sure you can't hear me breathing, right? Because we're breathing slowly. If I was, that's me moving the air really quickly. And you can hear that, right? So we want our breath to be slow. And the last thing is we want it to be deep, right? We don't want to take shallow breaths because if we just kind of work it out, if I take shallow breaths, I need to take more of them. And the more breath I take, the higher my heart rate, my blood pressure, the more activity in my brain, you know, it's a flow on effect that it's not just I take more breaths, it impacts all the other systems in the body. So if we can breathe low in the body really slowly and ensure we're breathing deeply, that's going to kind of tick most of the boxes for biomechanics, biochemistry, and, and even the nervous system. I like it. Like, And I guess, I mean, follow up question, there's so much good information that I think for people that probably would try and change their breathing, like changing those three things at once or trying to do focus on like the biomechanics or the biochemistry, or even the cadence, right? It's going to be tricky to monitor all those three things. So do you have any specific exercises that you would maybe give to focus on each of those individual aspects? Like what yeah, would you for sure. kind of prescribe and, you know, practice? I think it's best to start with biomechanics. And in fact, it's, it's not, I think it is best to start with biomechanics because let's say we teach you some breath holding practice that's going to impact your chemistry. That doesn't change how deep of a breath you take and how many breaths you take in a minute kind of hit your ceiling pretty quickly. Whereas if we first change biomechanics, we change how you take your breath, then it's going to give us much more wiggle room when we start looking at your chemistry and your nervous system. So for biomechanics, we really want to kind of look at like, you know, and this is something I try and get better at when I educate people, like all breathing is diaphragmatic breathing technically, you know, unless you've had a neurological injury, your diaphragm works. But to what extent is a different question, you know? So again, a lot of people, whether you had back pain, you sit at a desk, if, you're, if you've been pregnant or you've had kids, like these are really critical factors that are likely to impact your biomechanics, right? If we sit at a desk for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, right? The rib cage kind of folds over, the pelvis rolls back, and we kind of like cramp down on top of the diaphragm. It's just hard for it to move through its full range of motion there. Versus if I'm standing up, you know, my chest open, my shoulders back, my spine long, I've actually got a lot more movement. So the diaphragm can move my rib cage and pull more air in. So we want to make sure that we've got good kind of range of motion of the rib cage, the thoracic spine. Simple, you know, arms overhead, laying on the ground, doing some rotation side to side, maybe getting a foam roller and leaning back over that to just open up the rib cage. Um, and I also love to teach people how to actually massage and, and stretch their own diaphragm. And, and it's super simple. 
you know, taking the tips of the fingers and just kind of wedging them under the rib cage, thinking up and really giving the diaphragm a bit of a stretch to make sure, you know, and if you do this now, you might notice like maybe it's a bit tight or it's a bit tender as I try and get under the rib cage. It shouldn't be, you know, the same way if you've ever gone to a physio and they chuck their thumb into a tight muscle and it's a bit tender, right? It's tender because it's tight. And so the diaphragm, we really want to make sure that it's and loose and mobile so that I am able to use it. The biochemistry side of things or physiology, it's really about restoring or rebuilding someone's tolerance to carbon dioxide. And without getting too technical and into the weeds, you know, carbon dioxide kind of gets vilified a little bit just as this waste product, but it's so, so important in its role in actually allowing oxygen to move out of the blood and into the cells. That's where we want it, right? Oxygen in our blood isn't really a lot. We need to deliver it to the mitochondria and then my body can produce energy. And so I have to have a good tolerance to building up carbon dioxide so I can have the opportunity to move oxygen out of the blood. And so great ways to do that is to practice slow breathing or even some breath holding, right? If I stop and hold my breath, no more oxygen is coming in, but more importantly, no more carbon dioxide is going out, right? I've just stopped exhaling. My body's still running, right? The 60 trillion cells are doing their thing. We're producing carbon dioxide. It's going to build up because now I'm not breathing it out. Pretty quickly for some people, you know, 10 seconds and, you know, maybe our athletes and fitter people a little bit longer, 30, 40 seconds are going to start to feel like I need to breathe, right? That I need to breathe sensation is not oxygen falling. Your oxygen hasn't changed at that point. That's carbon dioxide building up. And if I can get used to that and I can become more tolerant of it, then I start to stretch that buffer zone. And so simple practice, breathing slower want to or being less than you want to or being in some breath practice in a safe environment um, is going to start to you know encourage my physiology to become a little bit more flexible nice nice and i i guess like um because i read somewhere that it's to do with the more it's, it's carbon dioxide sensitivity right so the more that you're able the chemoreceptors are able to be less sensitive to carbon dioxide the more efficient that will help your your breathing is that kind of correct exactly right and so, you know, it's, it's a really interesting kind of thing. And I, I see this really interesting parallel between people with anxiety and athletes, right? I, you know, it happened quite a few times where I'm working with an athlete and then my next client was someone with anxiety. And I'm like, I'm teaching the exact same thing, you know, just yeah. to a different degree. Like the athlete might be going from 30 seconds of CO2 tolerance with a breath hold time. We're trying to get them to 50. And the person with anxiety and panic might be going from five to 10. But again, it's just like, if I can improve my body's tolerance or ability to tolerate carbon dioxide, it changes a lot of things. And there's this kind of, if we're talking about anxiety, there's this network in the brain called the false suffocation alarm system. And for people with anxiety and panic attacks, the relationship that they have with carbon dioxide, it's as if their brain says, we're going to suffocate, we're going to suffocate, which is very anxiety provoking, you know? And a lot of people with anxiety, when they do that breath hold time, that, you know, ask them, what, what did that feel like? It felt like I was going to suffocate. You know, it felt like I was going to die. It felt like it was, you know, panic inducing. And so the alarm system is a little bit, you know, too sensitive. And that's a chemoreceptor alarm system. And that tolerance is a really great way to reduce anxiety and panic. Perfect, perfect. And that actually transitions really nicely to, to what I wanted to talk about next, which was... Um, I, I read a quote, and I'm just going to read it here. I wrote it down. I read a quote on your on your website that really resonated with me. I'm just going to read it out to you uh, to you now. So you said, "Stress is not the enemy. 
our relationships with stress can be one that is negative or of positive adaptation. And I really wanted to get you to delve deeper into that because it kind of really resonated with the idea of how we can use breathing, how this can help to manage emotions and help to manage stress. Um, so, yeah, do you want to just talk a bit about that kind of quote and what that means to you? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, it's one of the other areas I think breathing gets kind of maybe misinterpreted or misunderstood in terms of what the benefits are. You know, we see a lot of the the peak breathing and the experiential stuff really, but missing the functional side of things. And I think stress falls into the same category that just gets the, we have the wrong idea. You know, you go on the news, I did this the other day, I was writing a blog piece on it and I just typed in like headlines around stress. It was like stress kills, stress does it. Like it's all this interpretation that stress is killing me. It's negative. I should avoid it. I need to manage it. Like, which puts us on the kind of back foot of like, stress is bad and I need to avoid it at all costs. Otherwise it's going to kill me. Right. And that's, it really kind of misses the idea that stress is a constant, right? Stress is why we're here. It's how we evolved. If we're not able to adapt to stress, we don't last very long, <laughs> you yeah. know? And so instead of seeing as stress as this big looming thing out there that's out to get us and that we need to avoid at all cost, instead, what if we think about like, what if I just worked instead on my capacity, right? If I built more resilience, you know, I love this idea of fragility, right? The more that's applied, the stronger I get. Instead of us running away and managing and mitigating from stress, it's like, no, I can turn and face it and seek it out. And my body will respond completely differently. You know, in the Wim Hof method, I, I teach with ice baths, right? There's huge cardiovascular benefits, great for the immune system, all these things. But why I teach cold exposure and ice baths is it's an opportunity to test your stress response, right? And I love to give people this example. If we were sitting here and I had an ice bath, right? And I just threw you in there unprepared. You would have a negative stress response. You know, like that would not be fun for you. And you would actually have a different biological response in terms of the adrenaline, the cortisol, the epinephrine, your emotional experience of that, right? Will be completely different to, Johnny, I'm going to give you these tools, right? You're going to breathe this way. This is what's going to happen in your body. And I want you to step into that ice when you feel ready you'll have a completely different response, right? But how? It's just a tub full of ice water, right? The stressor didn't change. It was just stress. Your relationship with that stress changed. Something that happened to you versus something that you chose to do is really different in how your body responds. And the ice bath is an example, but you know, your job, your relationships, financial stresses, like how I look at that and the relationship I develop with the stressful things in my life is under my control. And it does this really interesting thing to my biology and to my genetic activity that we do have more control over how we respond to stress. And so instead of avoiding it, like, let's practice it. Let's get in the ice bath. Let's have a hot sauna. Let's lift some heavy weights. Let's go for a run. Let's do some fasting, right? All these things are just an opportunity to stress myself out consciously, right? And every time I do that, I build my stress resilience so that when the boss dumps a you know, project on my plate or the kids are causing havoc or the traffic's bad on the way to the airport. It's not like, oh shit, what do I do? I'm. It's like, this is the same thing that I practice all the time, right? I've developed a relationship with this feeling in my body and I can navigate it successfully versus try and run away from it and I lose my mind and I yell at people. Like that is something that really doesn't have a good relationship with stress. And the only thing that's going to change that is by changing that relationship and, and consciously engaging in stressful events. 
I like that. I think it's it's one of those things that like exposing yourself to the stressor makes it easier for you to be able to deal with that situation, right? And it's being able to do it consciously um, in a way whereby the more that you do it, the easier it becomes, right? And I think that's, you said some really interesting things about the this idea of the difference between maybe like the stimulus and then how we respond to that same stimulus, right? Because the stimulus might be the same, but two different people might respond in a different manner. And, and I think that's, yeah, some of those ideas are really cool. So uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing about that. What does um next question? Because this podcast is all about kind of what what the optimal mindset is and and some of the tools, the strategies, and the techniques that people can use. So, what is the optimal mindset? What would that mean to you? Like, if I ask you, how would you define Campbell? What is the optimal mindset? What would that what would that mean to you? You know, it, it's funny. We were talking just before we hit record, Johnny, about you know, like what is optimal breathing. And I was kind of saying there's no such thing as just good breathing, right? It depends on the environment. And I would say the exact same thing about mindset, you know? So what I would say the optimal mindset is, is one of flexibility. It's one of versatility. It's one of adaptation. You know, I should have a different mindset or, or state of mind if I'm, you know, playing with my kid versus running up a hill versus teaching a workshop versus studying, you know? And so I think what to me is an optimal mindset is one that is adaptable. It shifts, it's versatile, and I can influence it. You know, I want to have a different mindset when I'm playing with my kid. But if I've just had a crazy stressful day, it's my responsibility to shift that mindset, right? To get out of my boss or my job or the stresses of my day and be fully present with my kid, you know? And so to me, it's like, tools can I develop to actually have more influence over my mind, right? And so that as the environment changes or the situation changes, you know, it's not this kind of like hand was left back there and now like chewing on this problem or the someone said yesterday and I'm not present with my kid or I'm not, you know, whatever it is I might be doing. So my ability to kind of like pull my attention and my focus and my mind along with me and say, this is what we're doing now. We're not going to worry about that thing that happened yesterday. And I, I think that's a skill. It's like a muscle. You know, I can go to the gym and I can do bicep curls to get a stronger bicep. I can also practice, you know, moving my mind and changing my mindset so that I get better at. And so that that gives me the opportunity of like, oh, you know what? I'm sitting here thinking about a problem that happened yesterday and I'm not present. Like, let me change that. Let me adapt. Let me shift and let me move my mind so that I am present. I am kind of enjoying what's going on now rather than worrying about what happened yesterday or that's going to happen tomorrow. So I, I think kind of short answer is, is flexibility. Like and I love what you said there about you know being able to be more present and moving yourself away from what you did yesterday to being right now. What would some of the tools be that you would you would maybe use to develop that? Like you were comparing your mind to a muscle. Like what would be some of the tools? Obviously, we kind of touched on breath work. I'm going to go back there, you know, in a minute. But what would some of the other tools be that help you to train your mind to be more present and be more able to yes move on? Right. So I think the big relationship between physiology and psychology. Right. So you said another way, physiology, body, psychology, mind. They are two sides of the same, you know, and I think often why people struggle is it's a psychological or it's my mind. And I try and use my mind to change my mind. Right. I'm thinking about what happened yesterday and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be thinking that I should be present. And I'm trying to use a mental tool to shift. We will always lose that battle. <laughs> you know, our mind has a bias, right? Our brain has a bias. It's designed to solve problems and look for what could go wrong and detect threat. Like that's how it's evolved over millions of years. So me just deciding I want to think about this now is not strong enough. But physiology influences psychology, body influences mind. 
And so I really like to use these physiological interrupts or tools, you know, one of those being breath. You hold your breath, like, like let's play a, a, you know, crude example, but you're worrying about some problem, you know, and it could be a problem, you know, a fight with your partner, you're going to lose your job, whatever. I mean, it's trivial, but it's a problem in your mind. Hold your breath for a minute and tell me what's a bigger problem. You know, immediately your body will be like, put that down. That's not important. Why aren't we breathing? What's going on right now in my environment in this immediate moment? I'm breathing to stop. It will immediately preference, you know, what's going on right now. So my physiology is going to override my psychology and say, hey, that might be a big problem that we're thinking about, but it's irrelevant if we're going to die in a minute, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, it's a general way to describe it and a bit crude, but it it works like that. And so a breath hold or changing my breath pattern is a fast way to change my physiology and it will interrupt what's happening in my psychology. But secondarily, like the only way to change breath isn't the only way to change physiology. Posture is a really, really important one. You know, next time you find yourself really down or thinking about something, like check in with how, you know, your elbows down on your knees, your head in your hands, like stand up, put your just pull your shoulders back, adopt a posture that's it's going to change your physiology, right? We know it changes your endocrine response, your shifts. And so instead of like, again, using my mind to try and change my mind, it's like, oh, I'm running this loop again. I'm worried about next week. Like instead of trying to talk myself out of it in my head, it's like change my body, change my physiology, change my posture. And that's going to interrupt that and allow me then to, you know, set my mind as to what's going on or what do I want to think about or what state do I want to be in? I love it. I love it. Some awesome tools there. Yeah, there's some really uh, some really good ideas there. All right, let's dive into the next topic. So um, you talked a bit about how you work with athletes. Um, and so obviously, I'm a coach and a teacher, so I often work with athletes and, and uh, teams. So maybe you could delve into how you use breathwork or how you would teach breathing or functional breathing to athletes. So what, what kinds of things would you be working on if you, let's say, an athlete came to you and was like, I want to improve my the way that I breathe, or I want to maybe use it for sports performance. What would you? What would be some of the things that you would do? Yeah. So again, it, it depends. You know, am I working with a weightlifter? It's going to be really different in attention. But as a general kind of overview, we want to make sure that someone has you know the high CO two tolerance that we talk about, particularly endurance athletes. You know, someone that's running triathlons or marathons, like they need to have an ability to tolerate the buildup of CO2 because you're 20 Ks into a run. Like there's a lot of CO2, you know? Yeah. And if you can actually regulate that, that's the difference between, you know, aerobic metabolism, presence of oxygen and anaerobic, right? Now I start building up lactic acid and these metabolic kind of byproducts and waste products. And so I really like to kind of take people to the physiological state that is similar to performance, right? So if that's a marathon runner, Rather than having that person run 20Ks, you know, and put their body through the wear and tear to get to that state of, you know, exhaustion, it's like, hold your breath or breathe really slowly or do a certain protocol that's going to rise the amount of CO2 and learn how to stay there, you know. And then from that, so add like a lot of runners at wall, form goes out the window. They start flailing around like they don't have the body control. So we can put you under this physiological stressor, lots of CO2, and then practice, run or walk, but maintain, you know, tall frame, long stride, even cadence. The things that we know are going to happen 20, 30 Ks into the run when we kind of like hit that wall, we can practice them now without putting those Ks under the belt. And I think that's really, really important. But the other side is, you know, particularly in if we look at more like 
team sports, you know, let's talk about rugby or soccer or something like it's this stop, start, stop, start. And it's really like, how do I, you know, regulate? It might be a sprint. There might be a goal. We've got a, a short window of time to get our physiology back into recovery, so to speak, you know, but a lot of people, you know, if we think of just the simple difference between through the mouth or breathing through the nose, breathing through the mouth is it really ramps the nervous system up and it keeps us in this action state. Breathing through the nose slows the nervous system back down. We want to kind of toggle between performance recovery, performance recovery, even in one match, you know, or a set of lifts or, you know, a wad at the CrossFit gym. It's like there's these little opportunities that I can take to quickly recover and then I can flip back into performance. But if I just continue to breathe through my mouth, even in those little lull periods, you know, the ball's gone out, we've got 10, 15 seconds. Like if I can have a little set of from mouth to nose breathing, fast breathing, slow breathing, ability to keep performing is very different, you know? And I, I couldn't think of a more appropriate example as like martial arts, you know, you you're like you got three round, three minutes or five minutes of high intensity, like full on, and then you got three minutes to. If you watch the, it's there like, right? They start that next round and they're already on the back foot. You know, as if they can take that couple of minutes to just room, wind their nervous system down, bring their physiology back into balance, right? And then they can kind of step back into performance. And so I think that the simple again is like build good functional mechanics, build good functional chemistry, but also teach someone how to use their breath as a tool during performance, right? Oh, you do need to sprint, right? Open the mouth and go for it, you know, but now you've got an opportunity to recover. What am I going to do to get back into recovery rather than just like let my breathing happen and hope for the best? There's a lot more, you know, influence we can have over that. Just, I mean, I have interest, you know, obviously we've got you know, as sports progress in terms of technology, you know, you've got sports scientists, you've got psychologists, you've got nutritionists, and you've got all these people working with athletes. Do you think that people are starting to employ people like you that are involved in, you know, breathing and breath work? Do you think that's becoming more of a thing? And can you see that something being that's going to rise over the next few years? Definitely. You know, if you look to, he's the current champ in the UFC, Israel Adesanya, um, who fights out of, or he lived in New Zealand, fights, I'm not sure where out of, but he's got a breathing coach, Dave Wood, you know, that puts him through these stressful breathing protocols. Um, I, I know Logan Paul, whichever one of those, Jake Paul, I think, who's like doing the boxing, he's got a breathing coach um, that's like going through these kind of visualization and, and the technical side of like how to breathe. So I think it it's still quite lacking, you know. I work with some pretty high-level athletes <laughs> the worst thing I've ever seen, you yeah. know, but are, are performing at a really high level. And there's examples, you know, of other breathwork coaches, Brian McKenzie, who's really big in the US and, and works at that kind of elite level, talks about, you know, these Indians and world-class athletes that have got a CO2 tolerance of 10 or 15 seconds, you know, that it's like so dysfunctional, but they just have incredible willpower and grit and determination and the other elements of performance. And so I think it's becoming a little bit more, you know, recognized that, hey, if you're not breathing well, it's limiting your performance. And now there's people out here that are going to teach you how to optimize your biomechanics, your chemistry, your nervous system regulation. And so I think we will see more and more of that. Like if you don't have a breathing coach, you're kind of, you're missing a, a big element of your performance. And so I, I hope to see that anyway, you know, maybe that's my bias talking that I, I hope to see that it kind of does become a little bit more of a, you know, a necessary part of performance team. I like it. I mean, I guess you must be one of the, you know, it's exciting for you, right? Because, yeah, like, I feel like it's something that hasn't 
fully reached its potential yet. Like it's still something that's in its infancy, right? Like in terms of in a few years' time, hopefully we could see that exponentially grow. So we've got more people working with breath coaches and working with people on their breathing, right? Um, in our chat, I hope so. talked about. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Don't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, you know, like if you look at what happened ago in the nineties, just like exploded in the west and the you know western world and then in the 2000s it was kind of mindfulness and meditation and i think like breath work is this next like oh here's this thing and, but my and again I, I have to completely be transparent that i'm probably biased but i don't see this as a, a trend you know i see this as like people recognizing oh this thing that we haven't been paying attention to is really the foundational piece of health and performance and so i hope to see it doesn't just kind of like peak and then fade out i hope to see and i, I think it will become a mainstay because we're seeing now that it is working in the clinical setting as well as these, you know, fringe performance things of people climbing mountains and performing in sport. Like it, it's starting to address so many different elements that I don't think we can ignore it. Perfect. Perfect. So at the start of a conversation, you talked about, or we talked a bit about social media and like the, the role that you see people, you know, doing some, some breathing or, sh- or showing themselves breathing. I just wanted to get your opinion. I know you wanted to, to touch on this, like, the social media people, the influencers maybe who are, who are having these things, how does that differ from reality and how does that differ from, or how could that impact someone who's watching those videos? What are your, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. So I always, you know, the analogy of like the, the tip of the iceberg that's above the water, you know, is a much smaller part than what's under the water. And I think what we see in social media, you know, is the tip of the iceberg. It's the peak experience breath work. It's usually a, a hyperventilation style practice or superventilation, you know, and let me kind of pause because it's incredibly transformative and it can be incredibly cathartic. And it's been a huge part of my practice for five years and it will continue to be like there is immense value in it. But because it's so easy to share and it gets viral and it's like people jump straight to that. And if you breathe that way, right, if I'm going to sit down and do 30 minutes of conscious connected hyperventilate, like if I've got bad biomechanics and I've got, you know, a low tolerance for my physiology, my nervous system is predominantly in a sympathetic state where I'm stressed and anxious. That is not going to help, right? That is not the right thing. And that is going to make it worse. It's going to give people more anxiety. It's going to make their breathing worse because what we practice, you know, bleeds over into when I'm not paying attention to it. Breathing is very unique. It's the only system in our body that's both automatic right? Right now you're listening to me talk. You're not trying to breathe. It's happening in the background, right? Same as I am. But at the moment I decide to I can take whatever type of breath I want, right? Like I just jumped in the driver's seat. But what I practice when I'm in the driver's seat is going to influence my autopilot. What people see, you know, the Wim Hof method or transformational breath work or rebirthing or holotropic, like these really intense practices. And they kind of negate or completely ignore the fact that breathing is a function of health, right? And if I just practice intense hyperventilation all the time, that's going to bleed over and it's going to change my breathing for the worse. And so let's not get rid of the tip of the iceberg. It's really important and it can be hugely transformational. But let's also address what's under the water, which is like you breathe 20 to 25,000 times a day, right? What you do in 20 minutes in a little conscious practice is far less important than what you do for 23 hours and 40 minutes every day, right? And so really kind of understanding, well, how do I optimize my breathing for health you know for performance for function versus how do i learn this cool shiny toy that's really good right don't get like it can be great 
But it, it's almost like sometimes people are chasing the high. You know, I can do this intense breath work and I feel really out. But then the, the remaining 99% of the day, I'm completely ignoring my breathing. And that's not going to give me the, the, res- the long-term lasting results that I want to see. You know, and I, I often use this example as a physio, you know, posture is really important. And I have patients come in all the time. Oh, I sit at a desk for 10 hours a day, but I go for a 20-minute walk. You know, it's like, I don't know if that's enough. <laughs> Like, what about we get you a standing desk so we create some movement or better habits so that you don't sit for, you know, that's detrimental to sit for 12 hours. And a 20-minute walk is not enough to counteract the negative impact of that. The same way that 20 minutes of breath work is not enough to counteract the negative impacts of if you're breathing through your mouth all day or you're breathing up into your chest all day, you know, that's what's going to override and, and that's going to be the, the influence on your nervous system. And so really kind of like zooming out a little bit and just being like, let me first look at my breathing and, and restore it to its, you know, functionality. And then I can take it for a test drive. You know, I've learned how to drive this vehicle. Now I can really get the most out of it. I'll get more out of the intense practice. And I definitely had that experience myself. You know, I kind of started with Wim Hof. And then as I learned more and more and understood more breathing, it's like, oh, wait, I'm doing this too fast or I'm doing it too hard or not fast. You know, it gave me the ability to tweak it and get so much more out of the exact same practice. Amazing. Thank you. That's such a, uh, yeah, such a, such an in-depth answer. I feel like we've really kind of jumped around. Like we've talked a lot about some really things that I'm like super interested in. We've talked about like breathing. We've talked about stress. We've talked about performance. We kind of like looked at it from a very holistic approach. And I kind of love that you're very knowledgeable about these different areas, which is, which is really cool. All right. I'm going to kind of start to wrap things up, but I have a question. If you could only read or maybe um, use like two resources or two um, I guess pieces of information that you're going to use. What would you recommend? So, if you had like two books that you would recommend, or two courses, or two areas, what would be those two things that you would recommend to people to to follow up on anything we talked about? It's a really good question. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I'll give us kind of one of each medium and one that I think covers the most ground for the most people. I think the book Breath by James Nestor is an incredible resource. You know, it's not going to teach you any fancy breathwork practices, but it's going to teach you how important breathing is. You know, these simple shifts of going from mouth breathing to nose breathing, fast to slow, what it does to our jaw structure, our facial development, you know, our cardiovascular system, our blood pressure, our blood sugar, like the list goes on. It's quite scary, (laughs) you know, and I think sometimes people need to be kicking of like, oh, shit, you know, like this is something I really should be paying attention to. And I think that's an incredible resource to really look at breathing through this, you know, anthropological lens of like, we didn't used to breathe like this. Go back 300 years, 500 years, 1000 years, we didn't breathe like we do now. And we also didn't have the chronic rates of anxiety and panic and, you know, all of the the modern illnesses. So am I saying breathing is causing them? Of course not. Is it related? And is it contributing? Absolutely. And so I think Breath by James Nestor is a really good overview. And I, I... Second resource I'd suggest a little bit more technical, but he does a great job of breaking down some pretty complex stuff is the Huber podcast. Um, he talks about the nervous system and stress and physiology. He talks a lot about breathing. So his lab studies quite a lot of breath work alongside kind of Jack Feldman, who's really, really kind of high up in that realm. Um, but that's kind of like, if you want to understand how your body works, that podcast, you know, there's it, it's been going for quite a while now. So there's a lot to kind of go back and catch up on, but I would just slowly work through that. It's, you know... I think he talks about, you know, it's easy to implement neuroscience, you know, but I, I think the more that we understand about our body, the better we can use it. I, I make this analogy sometimes, you know, you look at an iPhone, most people like 
Right. Like I learned, I learned a little bit and I can get this functionality out of it. But the people that really like understand the settings and like the tweet, like they get a lot more out of it, you know? And so if you only understand a tiny bit about how your body works, you know, there's limited functionality there for you. If you dive deeper into investing in time, like what happens when I change my posture, change my diet, live better? Like you'll then start to be like, you know, now I know how to drive this vehicle way better and I just have a better time. Like when I kind of came to work, my sleep got better. My relationships got better. My energy got better. I lost weight. Like none of that's to do with breathing. Like, yeah, sure. My breathing got better, but that's not why I'm like so passionate about breath work. Like get better at breathing and it, and it helps you just get better at living and having better relationships and having more connection and self-awareness. So I think about your body is a really important thing. And I, I think that podcast is probably the best place to start. I love it. Getting better at breathing, getting better at living. That's such a cool little phrase. I love that. That's, that's awesome. All right. So for the, the, the people out there, where would be the best place to find you? Like people wanted to to connect with you or want to learn up. Well, I mean, I want to learn up. I want to definitely want to all the stuff that you've touched on. I definitely want to want to learn more about the work that you've been doing. So how will people connect with you? What's the easiest way for people to find you? So easiest way is definitely Instagram. That's where I'm most kind of active. My handle is at breath body therapy. Um, my website's the same my email's the same and I, I really encourage people like I'm super passionate about this stuff you know I kind of work in two settings I work with individuals that really want to restore breathing I have a, a self-paced five-week course that's a great introduction a lot of what we spoke about today um, and then I also work with health professionals and practitioners that want to integrate breath work you know into what they teach and, and their services and who they offer it to you know so if you fall into one of those two categories, which is everyone, yeah. <laughs> you know, like if you're if you're looking to restore your own breathing, there's some resources that I can provide to you. If you're looking to, you know, how do I integrate this professionally? Um, I run a certification and a training to teach people that as well. Perfect, perfect. All right. Well, what we'll do is we'll put some of that. We'll put all those information in the show notes so that if people want to have a look at it, they can they can follow up with you. But just wanted to say a huge thank you for for giving up your time. I feel like we covered a, a real breadth of of topics there, which is which is awesome. And yeah, I really appreciate you uh, sharing your wealth of knowledge. So yeah, thank you so much. Um, My pleasure, Johnny. Perfect. So thanks very much for uh, for tuning in. Um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing your thoughts on the show, and uh, we will catch up again soon. For the next episode all right take care everyone thank you so much for tuning into the optimal mindset podcast we are available on soundcloud and on spotify i've included my information in the show notes below for those of you who wish to find out more about our guests and our upcoming shows i look forward to hearing from you soon